I thought I would begin this session uh, with a uh, response that the Lord Jesus gave to um, a question that was asked of the Pharisees, uh, by the Pharisees, as we are in the middle of and actually just beginning verses 4 through 7 of chapter 13. And I think it's important for us to... um, see the eminent practicality of what Paul's saying here and tie it and connect it with other parts of the New Testament. Let me explain uh, what what I mean by that. In the uh, first century, uh, early first century, when Jesus was uh, on earth in his public ministry, one of the major uh, debating points among the, the rabbis, the Pharisees primarily, was of the Ten Commandments, what's the greatest? And, uh, you know, it's one of those things, I guess it makes sense that you would discuss that, but at, at another level, you think, well, just, they're all important. Why try to segment one out? But nonetheless, they were having that debate, and so they tried to draw Jesus in it, uh, into that debate, and they asked him a question. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus uh, responded, as he usually does, uh, not really answering the question. Directly, Indirectly, he did answer it. But his response was this. And the word that he uses is the word that we're studying in this chapter. Agape. He says the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God. And Mark's account is from the Gospel of Mark that you have this full rendition with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. But then he says, or he adds, and I really should put a conjunction here, and your neighbor as yourself. And in terms of what they were asking him, it's really, really interesting to investigate that. The Ten Commandments, the first four, talk about loving God. And love your neighbor as yourself, is what chapter, excuse me, what commandments 5 through 10 are all about. So Jesus did answer the question. So Jesus, in in answering that question, responding to uh, that hot debate of the first century among the Jewish leadership, is in a sense what the Apostle Paul is getting at in chapter 13. Because he is describing what this love looks like. To love my neighbor as myself, chapter uh, um, 13, verses 4 through 7, helps us to understand what that means, but also what it means to love God. Let me take a minute and just, uh, it's not a bunny trail, it's actually directly related to this, but in the Gospel of Mark's account is where we have this, and it's also in the book of Deuteronomy, loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's That's a holistic way of putting it. Heart is the center of your will. Soul is the center of your emotion. Mind is the center of your intellect. And strength is your physical body. So that's a holistic love. It's not partial. It's not compartmentalized. It's a holistic love for God. And your neighbor as yourself is what Paul is really talking about in this chapter that we're now... um, section of chapter 13 that we're now beginning to study. An agape love. And so what I've done is what I've done here is I've tried to break the sheet that I gave you into these four parts. So this is another way of doing it. Love, agape, is not an arrow going the wrong way. I don't know why that's here, so just ignore that. It's a concern for others. It's selfless. Love rejoices in the triumph of righteousness and truth. And then verse 7, it's the all-encompassing attribute. It's the all-encompassing quality of life that God is calling us to. So, let's break that apart. Are you with me? You understand what I'm doing here? In other words... What the Lord is commanding 
Paul is explaining in greater detail what this looks like. One of the one of the challenges that I think we face is when we read uh, a passage like four through seven, is we kind of get the idea that really, especially for us as men, love is it's kind of a weakness. It's kind of a milk toast, wimpish characteristic that God is really... He wants me to give up my manhood and become... This is what one man said to me. Become like a woman? He wants me to accentuate the feminine side of me. He wants me... He wants me to be like a doormat for people to walk over. And then I had one guy say, in other words, he wants me to become a political liberal, which I thought, where does that come from? <laughs> you know, I thought, good night. Uh, but it's just, it's the kind of thing as a quality of life that you often do not associate with manhood, however manhood is defined. As a cowboy, John Wayne, Help me today. What else would it be? Clint Eastwood or Marlboro. Marlboro Man. Those kinds of, and that is so. That's so far from the truth, and it's so foreign to what the Apostle Paul is really laying out for us. This is an immense strength, and it is the supreme, all-encompassing quality of life because this is what Jesus exhibited. I certainly would never call Jesus a doormat, or a milk toast, or a wimp. And sometimes you hear people say that to love like this means I really don't have to hold people accountable for their actions. I'm really not called upon to call people to accountability when there's error. I'm I'm just to embrace them and hug them and smooth them. None of that's true. So I'm trying to I'm trying to frame this section that we just began last week as a call upon God in our lives, a call of immense strength that unleashes truly the power of God in our lives, in our relationships, in our roles as leaders, in our roles as husbands or fathers or grandfathers. And this is what it looks like. So, you hear what I'm saying? I'm trying to say the same thing about four different ways. That this is a call upon our lives to do something that's impossible. It's impossible to do this without Christ. It is absolutely impossible. And it is in human relationships. I'm thinking a husband loving his wife. Father loving his children. This is what it looks like. And so Paul is saying, so I I use this with, with men sometimes when Paul says in Ephesians 5, men, love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's an unconditional love. There are no conditions. In spite of everything a person does, I still love them. That doesn't mean I don't hold them accountable. That doesn't mean I don't care. No, it just says this is your, this is to be your your attitude, that quality of life that defines you as a loving husband or a loving father or fill in the blank. I want to read the whole thing again, and I want to go to this sheet and go through some of these. We only got started, I think, one or two of the qualities last week. I'm reading reading from the New American Standard, verses 4 through 7 of chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. Is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. 
is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in, with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then the last quality, which really introduces what he wants to say in 8 through 13, love never fails. It is a quality of life, if you would sum it up in one phrase, it is a quality of life that is other-centered. Not self-centered. It is the opposite. It is the, the diametric opposite position on a spectrum, diametrically opposed at the extreme opposite end of, I'm trying to say as strongly and as, with exaggerated language as I possibly can, opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness. And I believe one of the reasons this is so difficult for us is because at the heart of sin is selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent attitudes and behavior. That's the heart of it. Maybe I should repeat that. that at the heart of sin, in terms of how it's demonstrated or manifested, is a selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent set of attitudes and behavior. Is that the equivalent to narcissistic? Yes. Narcissism would be another way of, of putting those three terms together, very much so. But we don't have to be narcissistic to the same. Oh, heavens. No. But it's kind of act of general, generally speaking, what is always motivating sinful actions or sinful attitudes is it's all about me in, 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 in one way or another. And it's, for us as human beings, it's counterintuitive to, uh, maybe I shouldn't use that word, our intuitive response as human beings because of who we are is it is all about me. Every, everything, everything revolves around me. The opposite of that, which is what God is calling us to in a passage like this, is it is all about you, not me. You're married, you say to your wife, honey, it isn't about me. It's all about you. What do I do as your husband to serve you and love you? And I think this is why these, these terms and these ideas and these words and these concepts are so foreign to the 21st century. Because when you go to Ephesians 5 and it's in Colossians 3, you see that the role of the wife in a marriage, a one flesh union is, and I don't like to use the word because it is so misconstrued, misused, and prostituted today, but she is to submit to her husband, which is about the most incendiary thing you can say today. <laughs> but it is, when you see that term fleshed out from the Greek language, it's that disposition to yield and that inclination to follow the servant, loving leadership of her husband. And in Ephesians 5.32, Paul says, when you see that in action, a man loving his wife as Christ loved the church, a selfless, other-centered way of loving. And you see a woman who is his wife having that disposition to yield and inclination to follow her husband's loving servant leadership. You see a metaphor of Christ in the church. That's what Ephesians 5.32 says. Which is, gives you an indication of that marriage the one flesh union that God envisions in marriage is supernatural. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And so what he is calling us to here as he's flushing it out more generally is a supernatural way to respond to people. And you can go through every one of these qualities that I've listed here. The, the opposite is where we are. I am not patient. I am not. And I'm not kind. I don't like people. I really don't. But as my mentor 40 years ago said, Jim, ministry is people. 
I mean, I don't like people, but that's ministry. It's just people. I would prefer, yeah, I would prefer to go up to a, an ivory tower with my books and my laptop and, and no phone and just study all the time. But that's, that's not what God is calling me to. I'm saying all that because the, these are the unnatural responses. These are not the natural responses. So this list, this, these set of qualities that define love is a supernatural call. When I did a work study one time, one of the definitions, I don't know where I found it, but I always thought really worked well for me when I had talked to people about that word was when I looked up submit, I found one that said voluntarily serve. And I really liked that because I thought that was a truer indication than the twist that we have in society have put on and all being thinking if you're a doormat and woman's doormat. When you say it like voluntarily serve, to me that I don't know, I just I like that. As long as you understand in using that term in a husband-wife relationship that the husband is primarily and fundamentally to serve, not the wife. She is to yield and follow, not necessarily serve. Because he is to lead by serving. And she then has that disposition to yield and follow. And how is the word different in the verse above that when it tells us we all submit to one another and then it goes into that? How is that word different? Well, it's the same word, but it's, um, it, it's, it's a definition of that disposition to yield and inclination to follow one another as we're following Christ. Because Christ is, is our leader, which Paul says many times um, now a dimension and that's what I'm you, you ask the question in the husband wife relationship as long as you if you only use the word serve when it relates to the wife that is a very incomplete definition of the relationship as a matter of fact that is a prejudiced definition of the relationship and it, it's, it's only a hair step away from just keep them barefoot and pregnant and they're yielding and following me. So that, that's a real cynical way. Yeah, to. Yeah, but, but wouldn't she be serving if she is operating out of showing respect and yielding to him? Would that not still be voluntarily serving? As long as you do not exclusively assign serving to the wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand what you said. Yeah, I it is, I mean, by definition, uh, love is love among Christians, brothers and sisters, men, gals, children, etc., is a mutual serving. Absolutely. And that's the way I, I thought okay. this position was. It's yeah. a mutual serving. Did yeah. you hear what I'm saying? Because, believe me, I have been in dozens and dozens and dozens of discussions about this, and you bring up Woman and serving, you immediately you shut down the conversation. It's being very, very sensitive to the language we use when you're talking with people about what this means. Sure. Because a woman serves as her husband serves her. Sure. If you say only the woman is to serve, you've stepped outside of the New Testament. Patient. Let's quickly review that. It's a... It's a term that relates to a situation of suffering without the thought of retaliation, which is not the way we intuitively, impulsively respond. If someone does something against me, whatever it might be, my first thought is always retaliation. Paul is saying love means that's not your first thought. I read of Harry Truman. I don't have any idea what Harry Truman's spiritual state was. There is some interesting stuff about his spiritual life, but that's not the point. He had quite a temper. 
And as president, he began to follow a rule. When someone really ticked him off or did something, he would write the letter and let it sit on his desk for 24 hours. Then he would reread it and make the decision whether he was going to send it or not. At the end of his presidency, he had a file this thick. Seriously. And when I read that, I thought, there is a man, whether or not he walked with Christ uh, or, or whatever his spiritual, there's a man who's a, illustrating what this means. My first thought is retaliation, but that's not my first action. Patience is, instead of thinking of retaliation, vengeance, getting back, you think of that person the way God thinks of them. They are of infinite worth and value because God created them. They are going to live forever. The desire is that they live forever in fellowship with God in heaven. Because if they don't, they will live forever in judgment in hell. That is not, that, that it to me, when I read that word and understand what it means, that is one of the greatest evidences that love is a supernatural quality of life. Because I do not respond that way initially. My response is, I want to get back. I want to retaliate. Now, God in his grace has helped me move out of that. But still, that's often the initial thought I have. Driving along, somebody cuts you off or does something to you or somebody says something to you or, you know, I, I work out every morning in the gym and somebody's on my equipment. What I want to do is go over and pull them off that equipment and say, this is mine, not yours, get away, you know. And that's just, you know, you can't, you can't, that cannot be your first thought. That cannot be your first desire for action. That's what he's saying. Yes, Mark. Is that different from sometimes we say, I'm not going to act, I'm going to leave God to act, and we are hoping and praying that God will literally take Yes, I mean, uh, the, the, the next step of that or the next stage of that is, uh, and Jesus says it, Paul says it, and it's all through the, the, the Old Testament, is the, the, the response, vengeance, God, this is God speaking, vengeance is mine, I will repair, repay. I'll take care of the vengeance. I'll take care of the retaliation. But deep inside, if you're hoping and praying for God to take revenge of somebody, that's not love. <laughs> And we, 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 no, that's, that's, that's incorrect. That's incorrect. That is, that is totally incorrect. So I can do that? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't ever want to get crossways with you. Yeah. Now, it depends, Mark, on what you mean by that. In the Psalms, and there are about 30 of these, there are what are called imprecatory psalms. Uh, it's a big word. I know that doesn't mean much. But it's, it is, it's a psalm where David or whoever's writing it is saying, God, that person or those people, like the Ammonites or the Moabites or whatever, the Philistines, God, they have violated your justice and your righteousness. You take care of them. And so an imprecatory psalm or a, a, a cry of vengeance or retaliation is based on God's justice and God's righteousness. And you're calling out to God to take care of that. Now sometimes, you know, that was certainly true in ancient Israel, God used the Israelites as his instrument of justice and righteousness. But not, not always or not normally perhaps. That, that's why it isn't, The cry of the heart in an, in, a, in a situation like that is a cry for justice and righteousness. Not the personal, overwhelming desire to retaliate because they've, they're on your piece of gym equipment. Or, you know, they're, that, that, that's not quite... Because that isn't an issue. That's just an issue of they have a right to be there as much as I do. So I'll just go and use another piece of equipment until they're done with it. That's a silly way of putting it. Whereas when 
you know, when um, a culture is showing increasingly more and more disrespect for how God views life or how God views the sanctity of the marital one flesh union, I can't do anything about that. I can work to change a law, but I can't change those people's hearts. And I certainly can't, I can't bring justice and righteousness, but God can. And unfortunately, that often means that God will do very severe things to bring a culture or people back to a point of, of his righteousness and his justice. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time, in my own mind, being able to turn the other cheek. One of the things on the news was like the Negro Lincoln's thing. If that would happen to me, mm. I could just turn the cheek, mm. even if I wanted to give it to God. You know, I, I just can't put those pieces together. You know, with, with somebody that's capable of doing that to it, but if it was my, my wife. Mm. You know, I don't think I could, I could forgive. I certainly uh, understand and identify. I thought somewhat the same thing when I read those reports of, of him. And, uh, and in some ways, th- th- there was a breakdown of the system because a guy like that should never have come out. And, and you know, he was, at least to the degree I've understood it, he was telling everybody, and not everybody, he was saying, don't let me out because if I got I'm going to murder people. That's who I am. You know, I don't know how you would process that, but nonetheless, I understand what you're saying. Um, I've, I've, never, I've never had to deal with something like that at that level. For someone I dearly, dearly love is wantonly, seemingly, mercilessly murdered for no purpose whatsoever by someone like, uh, like that. The only thing I can say in response to that is, um, is God, despite everything we've done to him, everything we've done against him, um, is capable of loving and forgiving. And that's the standard he's calling us to. Jesus hangs on the cross, and it's just an absolutely, absolutely for me, an unimaginable statement to utter. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the standard. But it's, I, I, I agree with you. I don't know how you can do that. If, in a, Like the family that, that you're speaking of, I think, in relationship to that, that man. Um, but self-defense and protection and taking care of problems like that is, we are supposed to protect ourselves. Absolutely. It, again, this is not a call to being a milk toast or a wash rag or a doormat. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying to us that these qualities are the qualities that you exhibit. You, let me give you an example. We get down to the truth issue. Speak the truth in love is a command that's in Ephesians 4. Boy, that, to me, that is a very powerful command. I'm to speak the truth. So I confront error, yes, with love. Someone that's teaching something in the church that's heretical, I speak the truth in love. My children are out of, out of sync with the standards of our home, I speak the truth in love, as I did many times when they were growing up. I mean, it's, so it's not that you don't confront. It's not that you don't hold people accountable. It's not that you don't hold your children accountable. I mean, all of those things, but you do it in love. I think uh, especially, especially when you're working with young people, you know, with children or even young adults or teenagers, you, whatever that role is, as a youth minister or a teacher or, or even a parent, you must see, and this is very difficult to do sometimes, but you must see the potential in that person. Mm-hmm. You can't see them just in that five-minute period of time where they're so irritating to you <laughs> uh, for whatever reasons. Yeah, okay, what can I do to help that person, that young person, get over this so they can become all that God wants them to be? You may be the instrument that God will use to accomplish that. But I don't want to do that. 
Okay. That's not the loving response, but that's okay. If you don't want to do it, God will bring somebody along who will. But, I mean, I've been in higher education all my life, and I, I have to, I've dealt with that all my life. Because I, I, I had to, some of these times, I, when I was in leadership, I'd look at a kid three weeks into the semester of freshman year, and I would look at, why are you here? Why did we let you in here? What are you doing here? You know, you just think. And then you know, at the end of the first year, you say, oh, my goodness, there's been significant growth in that guy's life. And by the end of four years, you see amazing transformation because a bunch of people don't see the five-minute block where this kid's acting like a jerk. You see the potential if somebody just gets their arms around this guy, makes him accountable, helps him set some standards, helps him learn some disciplines, learn how to study, learn how to manage time, learn how to manage stress. It's really amazing what can happen to a person like that. That's what that's part of what Paul is saying here. Now, we, st- we only have one done. I, you know. So can, should we go on? Can, you don't want me to go on. Well, that's all right. brought up something, and maybe it's a stupid question to ask, but would you explain, maybe you've already kind of answered the question, but would you explain what it really means when you hear that to turn the other cheek? The language that Christ is using there is uh, a language of, of the ancient world, which wasn't, you know, Andrew and I are in a verbal discussion, and I get so upset with him, I take my fist and slam it into the side of his jaw and break his jaw. That's not the word he uses. It's, it's um, this isn't exactly the idea in the ancient world, but it's very close to a slap of offense. It's not doing necessarily damage to his face or his jaw or anything else, but it's a public it's a public offense. And and it's in that context of Jesus is talking about revenge. There are four examples he uses, and that's one of them. Your initial response is not one of vengeance and retaliation. Instead you turn the other two. So like you had already been saying, it's not necessarily that you don't defend yourself. Oh, heavens no. Or protect no, no, yourself, no. your there are, family. There, I just, because sometimes people really... No, that's, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's a totally incorrect application of that. Self-defense is a key teaching of Scripture. Defending personal property is a key principle of Scripture. It's one of the Ten Commandments. That's on the other side. It's one of the Ten Commandments. What I did when I teach in my ethics class, I take the Ten Commandments as a model of ethical behavior and ethical values. Because you have the first four which focus on God, and then those last six. And, you know, honor your father and mother, etc. That's the principle of human authority. Sanctity of human authority. If you cannot come under the authority of your parents, you will not come under the authority of anyone. Because God has so constructed his world that it's just layers of authority. Family, state, employer, etc. I mean, the church. The church has leaders. You submit to those leaders. You come under their authority. Thou shalt not lie. The principle of truth. The sanctity of truth. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The sanctity of relational intimacy in marriage. The principle of covetousness, the sanctity of human motives, constantly through the scripture. Covetousness is used as the touchstone of motives. Why do you do what you Because covet, nobody can, if Jim's covetous, I don't know he's covetous. I have no idea that he's struggling with that in his heart. It deals with motivations and attitude, sanctity of those things. And so it's, it's that same principle that Christ is applying here. As he used it, and there are, there are four illustrations he uses, and that's one of them. Your initial response is not to be one of vengeance and retaliation. You turn the other cheek, which is a way of saying my initial response is not vengeance, retaliation, and I'm going to slam him in the face and respond. That's not the initial response. It doesn't mean you don't defend yourself. Number two, kind. 
Love is kind. It's the only time this appears in the New Testament. And that has a difficulty for us because what, how is it used in other parts of the New Testament? It isn't. It's the only time it's used. But it is used apparently in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in, in, in um, usages outside of the Greek of the New Testament of God. How do you respond when you're hurt? How do you respond when someone hurts you? Again, kind and patient are like flip sides of the same coin. My response attitudinally is a response of patience. My first thought is not retaliation. And kindness is a focus on how I'm going to act. What are the actions I'm going to take? And that, I mean, think, okay, what's the kind thing for me to do to my enemy? You need to, I think that restraint is a very big part of this. It we is. We don't need to react immediately. We just, need to stop. we just need to stop and suck it up a little bit and process it and maybe pray about it. Uh, but restraint is so important. I think what happens to me as I get hurt or insulted or wronged and... And I pass right through that hurt part and get into anger and, uh, and wishing to retaliate. And bitterness. Yeah. And rage and all of those. Learning to restrain and, and mm-hmm. give it some time and mm-hmm. decide how oh, I want to do that. Maybe like Truman did or something. <laughs> Don't write the letter or nothing. But yeah. I do pray about it. And I, I, and I pray about the person that did it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes it takes a long time to get rid of that resentment or that hurt. And I don't know, I don't know where I got that, but that's what I do. Well, you got it from Jesus. That's what he teaches. But. Well, one, one thing, too, on that, I think, you know, we've all been hurt by someone at some time, but, uh, is that uh, we, we will remember it. It's not like we can forget it, but that doesn't mean, I don't think that it's, it's not the same as retaliation. We, we remember it, but I think it's okay to remember that perhaps for our future life as well. And I think we can thank God that we didn't retaliate that time that someone did X to us because we feel better about our <coughs> relationship with, with God. Do you remember when Jesus, uh, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and again, it's right after that passage we were talking about turning the other cheek, um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. Listen, Listen to this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Okay, that's what you take away. That's what you take off. What do you replace it with? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. That's patience and kindness rolled into two verses. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice be put away. In its place, put kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Tell me again what verse. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. That's just, that's another illustration sort of fleshed out for us of what love looks like. That is... I'm telling you, I sit here as honestly and transparently as I possibly can. These two words, patient and kind, as they are properly defined, are some of the most difficult things for me in my life. I've walked with the Lord since 1972, and I still, my first thought is almost always retaliation. That's my first thought. It, I mean, it just, it comes, it's just my first thought. When somebody does something, that's my ver and then instead of saying, Okay, Lord, what what kind of behavior would you want me to do? What kind of kind behavior would you want me to do? 
to respond to that person. Because Jesus modeled that. And so you have to step back, and that's that's part of the growth. That's part of what he's saying, like taking the deep breath, and it's all of those kinds of things. What Truman did, Truman wrote the letter, but he didn't mail it. <laughs> and he kept them as a... It, it, I read it in a little devotional, but it's also in David McCullough's biography of Truman. But he he kept them because he wanted as wanted that pile to be a constant reminder. I'm a leader. The very first thing I do is not retaliate. Because the buck, remember, he had that thing on his desk. The buck stops here. I have got the evidence, and he didn't know he took because he had quite a temper, but. This is, this is what God's calling us to, and you just say, this is really supernatural. Let's get off of this. It's getting way too convicting. The next block is, the first concern for others, the next block is selfless, selflessness, selfless, other-centered. Not jealous, not brag, not arrogant, not becoming, not seek its own, not provoke, not take into account a wrong. That whole list. So not jealous. That's, that's just what it means. I mean, there's nothing nuanced there. There's nothing unique about that Greek word. You know, you don't envy. Jealous. You know what? I mean, you know what that is? Jealousy. And that is, that's similar to the bitterness and anger. It can fester. It can just fester and grow and lead to all kinds of things. Jealous. And not brag. Again, that's a rare word. It's only used here in the New Testament. We do see it used in a lot of other Greek uh, writings of the day, but bragging, boastful is po- apparently a common characteristic of the Corinthian people. But bragging, boasting. No one ask you a question. Why do you see constantly through the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, frowning upon bragging and boasting? Why? It brings the glory to you as a person yeah. instead of the God. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's turning the arrow around. It, 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 everything is to be directed to the Lord, but in bragging and boasting, you're turning it back to yourself. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we preach and teach worm theology. Do you know what I mean? We're just a bunch of worms. That's not... So, affirming and encouraging and uplifting and Stressing positives, all those kinds of things are important, but bragging and boasting. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether I eat, whether I drink, whatever I do, I do all to the glory of God, not the glory of me. I'm using it the way Paul uses it. And that is um, because if you're ever around a bragging, boastful person, it's, it's uncomfortable. You get tired of it, you know. And uh, years ago, some of you might have read uh, uh, Jim Collins' uh, Good to Great. Good to Great. That was a book that leaders were reading, what, 10 years ago or whatever, 10, 15 years ago. And I think I've mentioned that before. If you haven't read that, it is still a very good read. But he talks about the companies and firms that are really great, the way he defines great. And every single one of them, and there were no exceptions to this, were level five leaders, what he calls level five leaders, which are servant leaders. They don't, they don't take the credit. They're not boasting and bragging. They're always serving and directing everything towards the teams that make this successful. In some cases, you know, in some cases, you don't even know, you don't even know who the, the CEO is. You know the company, you don't even have the seal. And sometimes that was, that was what made the company great. You don't even know who the top leader is. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't know that, but it's, it's a quality that you're always directing the arrow away from yourself instead of toward yourself. You're always, always directing the arrow toward the Lord and toward others. So that fits then with the, the next one, to not be arrogant. Literally in the Greek, not puffed up. And you, I put references in the book of Corinthians. It's used all over the place, which gives you an idea. This must have been a real issue. 
Isn't that puffed up? Didn't you follow? It's a figure of speaking. Can you get that? Puffed up? I mean, that's not hard to understand. Arrogant, puffed up. Again, it's directing the arrow towards yourself. Look what I did. I did. I did. If you go to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 and following, which is apparently a reference to the rebellion of Satan against God, there's a key phrase. I will, I will, I will. And the key phrase is, I will be like the Most High. Satan wants to overthrow God. Satan wants to topple God from his throne. And he was arrogant enough, puffed up enough, that he thought he could pull it off, which is just an, it's an amazing thought to me. Ezekiel 28 refers to him as the cherub, the, 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 the great light right next to the throne of God, and he rebelled against God, which is amazing. Jim, I've always wondered about that. Can I ask a question about that since you mentioned it? Yeah. Um, that the angels were created by God. Right. With supposedly not free will, but maybe that's where I don't understand that correctly. Because how could there be rebellion if in fact he, you know, he had no free will? Who's he? Satan? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think we can say that, Fred. I think we have to say he did have free will. I mean, I actually I don't like that phrase, free will, actually, because uh, it's not in the Bible. I don't like it because we understand it so differently in America. But anyway, uh, a better way to say it may would be a responsible, responsible choice. Did Satan have the capacity of responsible choice? The answer to that has to be yes. And if we've understood Revelation 12 correctly, one-third of the angels followed Satan out, out, of, out in rebellion against God. One-third of the angels followed Satan, which is the origin of the demonic hosts, you know, type of thing. Does that have anything to do with, with the 777 and the 666 that are in? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> It's, if it's all right, let's not get into that, okay, right now. But, um, no, I, I don't think so. I'm sorry, Mark, say it again. Yes, he was an angel. You know, in different religions, they, they have different nature about Satan. Like, like for Islam, they say he was, a, he was made of fire, angels from heaven, so he's a kind of different, different kind of creature. The Bible talks about him as one of the angels. That's right. Is the same thing or not? That's right. He is, uh, he's referred to in Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following, and Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following. He was, now I'm going to put it in the way we would maybe paraphrase it. Hmm? Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following to the end of the chapter, and then Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following. They're the two key passages that it focuses, Ezekiel 28 focuses on Satan's um, role and personage and, and, and characteristics before he rebelled. He was apparently, again, I paraphrase it, he was, say, he was God's right-hand angel. <laughs> he was the head of all the cherubim. He had an extraordinary role uh, of influence in the court of God, so to speak, um, but rebelled against him. And it was, a, it was an act of wanton, intentional, defiant rebellion against God, which sets up what really is the primary question that Scripture keeps answering. And that question is, who has the right to rule? Who has the right to rule this cosmos, this universe? God or Satan? How does the Bible answer that? God does. And that's why the Bible begins with God clearly defined as the creator of all things. The creator has the right to rule his creation. The question in, in society is who has the right to rule? God or Satan? The question in your life is who has the right to rule my life? Me, being energized by the evil forces of this world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, or God? That's the question. That's the fundamental question. 
And Satan's rebellion against God, which is, it, this, is, this is the part I just cannot answer. I just don't understand it. I don't understand this about God. If Satan had rebelled against me and I were God in the eons, I mean, I'd have snuffed him out just like that. I mean, that'd have been it. I just, it's the same with human beings. If Genesis 3 had happened to me and I was God, I'd have wiped the human race out. There's no Angels, just us. Nobody else. We tried these humans. They're not worth it. But Especially it, since he did it with Noah. Yes. That's right. But he didn't annihilate the race. He starts over. One of the themes of the book of Genesis is God recreating, recreating, recreating. And that's why after the Noah, Noah gets off the ark, chapter 9, he plants a vineyard, he gets drunk. And then there's nakedness. And there's what Ham did. God says it's the same problem. So what does God do? The recreation is he starts now with a person who will be the channel of his blessing. Abraham, who will be the father of the Jewish people from whom the Redeemer will come. And then finally you see the recreation theme at the end with the new heaven and new earth. God is constantly recreating because of his grace. And he'll do it one more time in the new heaven and new earth. Do-over. Well, in a way. But do-over. But... The only answer that seems feasible, back to my question of about five minutes ago, the only answer that seems feasible in Scripture is this was the only way, seemingly, the only way God could populate his heaven with human beings who would responsibly choose to love him. There's no other way to do it. So what I'm saying is when, because, you know, it is Satan who tempts Eve, who then Adam willfully, Eve Eve is deceived. Adam isn't deceived. Adam willfully, intentionally, and wantonly defies God. That's why the Bible blames Adam, not Eve. Adam is blamed because he willfully, he wasn't deceived. He willfully defied God. Anyway, but... Again, you know, if that would have happened to me, but God said, no, I love these humans. They're my image bearers. I want to walk with them for all eternity, but it has to be on my terms as a righteous God. So that's the plan of redemption that he sets in motion. It's just amazing. It's, it's called grace. It's called mercy. It's called magnanimous love that God has for us. And so he's, he's telling us this is what this is what it looks like for you to live this way. And, I'm, and as you'll see coming up, God makes this possible for us to love this way by the power of his spirit who indwells us. Now, we're, we ran down a bunch of bunny trails. Can we come back? No. Do one more. And it it's, it's, does not act unbecomingly. It's the beginning of verse 5. Does not act unbecomingly. It's, a very, it's a very hard. It's rude. Rude behavior. Rude actions. And I gave you an illustration that is used in, uh, in using that word in another context outside of Scripture, but in the Greek. Not behaving improperly toward others. In other words, an example would be provoking a young woman's affections and then refusing to marry her. You use her. You use somebody for your own selfish, self-centered ends. You use and manipulate and control someone for your own selfish, self-centered ends. That's what that word means. And again, that is, that is so common. It's common in business. It's common in government. And it can be common in a family relationship. <laughs> I, we, we are working with a couple right now. It's just... I just want to slam this guy against the wall. And the reason I say that is he, we keep saying to him, we quote scripture, say, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, unconditionally. And he has a long list of things. He will not love his wife until she does this, 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 and that. Where in the Bible does it say that? It doesn't. 
He is willfully and defiantly obeying, disobeying God. And he sets, and his wife is a, she is a dear gal. I mean, she's, she's, my wife keeps shaking her head. How can he? I mean, it's just because he just won't do it. He is, he is defying this particular quality right here. Not acting because he is setting conditions on his wife. I will not love you until you do this and this and this and that. 27 years ago, I was working with a guy who grounded his wife. Can you imagine that? Grounded his wife. She'd do something, he'd take the keys away from her. You know, you just think, what planet? And he calls himself a Christian. And you think, what planet is he living on that he thinks... Uh, they are now divorced. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just... But it's that kind of... It's these kinds of, that's an extreme, obviously, but it's a kind of conditioned, it's a kind of relationship where you're always setting conditions. I won't love you until this, this, this. I'm going to woo you into an affectionate relationship so I can use you. That's what this, no, that's not love. You're my employee, I'm going to manipulate and control you because of my, no, that's not it. Is there a reason stated for that? I mean, a why, reason why why he takes that position? I mean, I don't. You you mean this guy we're working with? Yeah, him? I mean, has that been? Well, he just his. Happened. I mean, his his response is a totally unbiblical response. Oh. Marriage is a two way street. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's true, but what does that have to do with your responsibility? Jesus never said, "I'm going to set conditions before I love you." If God had said, I'm going to set conditions, for, there would never be, there would never have been the cross. Right? Never. There would have never been, it would have never happened. Salvation would never be possible. God loves us unconditionally. But in order for him to have a relationship with him, he asks us to respond in faith to his provision. He did everything for us. He's just asking us to respond in faith, trusting that what he has done is sufficient. And I, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I'm saying they're, they're extreme examples, obviously, that I'm using. But I think so often we can, even maybe not even thinking through what we're doing, but we can actually set conditions. I won't love you. I won't care for you. We can, say, we can send that message to our children sometimes. We don't even intentionally want to send that message. But I'm really not going to love you completely until you meet this condition. And that's not the right way to do it. I've got to quit here. Um, goodness me. All right, well, next week, we'll, let's, we're going to start with not seek its own. Don't let me start with patient next week, okay? I want to start with not seek its own. If I start with patient, we won't get done. Because next week, I really want to finish this and, and move into the second part of Chapter 13. So, Man, I hope it's all right. We're taking the time with this. Um, this, is, this is really quite central the kind of life God's calling us to. Amen. Father, we're grateful for this time around the, the Word of God. I trust it's been beneficial. It's, it's a challenge in my life. And Lord, you know that. These are areas, especially a couple of these, that are incredibly difficult in my own life. My instantaneous response is often a response attitudinally of retaliation. And that is not pleasing to you. And I know in all of our lives, we could go around the table and just share and talk about how often difficult it is for us to see things the way the Apostle Paul's painting them here. But that's what you're calling us to. And really, there is enormous freedom in this. The freedom from bitterness, the freedom from vengeance, the freedom from that uh, poison of retaliation, that freedom from it's all about me, no, it's about you. It's about us together. It, freedom from the self-serving, self-indulgent, addictive way of living. Uh, this is liberating. And it's important for us to understand all of its dimensions and entrust your indwelling spirit to give us the enablement, the power, the desire, the motivation to live this way. We're also grateful that this is a process we don't instantaneously go from people who are in rebellion against you to people who are loving in this way. It takes a lifetime. 
but uh, we learn to see how liberating and freeing this kind of living really is. Bless these men and all of their responsibilities and work and details. Help them in their relationships with loved ones, family, in their workplaces, and most of all, help us, God, to love you and to represent you well in all that we say and do. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.